0: Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you're about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we will be considering from God's Word, Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 through 46. This is the passage involving the Garden of Gethsemane. These are the words of God. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, "Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble." Jesus said to him, "Assuredly I say to you that this night before the rooster crows you will deny me 3 times." Peter said to him, "Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. I will not deny you." So said all the disciples. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, "Sit here while I go and pray over there." And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again a second time he went away and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we come to you, we come to be nourished by your word, and we pray that you would feed us and build us up that we would understand, that we would be convicted, that we would be made strong, so that we might be your faithful disciples, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage in the Garden of Gethsemane actually concludes an extended section of the Gospel of Matthew, which began all the way back in chapter 16. And that passage began with Jesus beginning to head toward Jerusalem and toward the cross. From chapter 16 all the way until Jesus' arrest, he is marching toward Jerusalem and toward the cross. Now this this extended section began on a high note. It began with Peter's great confession of faith which he made on behalf of the disciples. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded to that confession by saying that it was the Father that had revealed this truth to Peter and the disciples and that Jesus was going to build his church on the rock of the confessing apostles and further that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. But all of that would be accomplished only by Jesus going to the cross and so we're told that from that time forward Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day and Jesus will repeat that prediction and that theme of the cross several more times from chapter 16 all the way to where we are now on chapter 26 that will be the drumbeat no matter what is going on from chapter 16 onward you have the drumbeat of the cross in the distance And that drumbeat is going to get louder and louder until here we find ourselves in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, going back to chapter 16, this high point, this great high point of Peter's confession of faith, it goes even higher up than that. Because six days later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up onto the mountain of transfiguration. It's an unnamed mountain, but on the mountain, Jesus is transfigured before them. That is, His glory is revealed. We're told that His face began to shine like the sun and His clothes became as white as the light. And we know that then Moses and Elijah appeared and were speaking with Jesus about the great new exodus that He was going to accomplish in Jerusalem through His death and resurrection. So there's a tremendous high point that this whole extended passage starts off on in Matthew chapter 16. Now what Matthew wants to strike us here in the Garden of Gethsemane is how the Garden of Gethsemane parallels and answers the Mount of Transfiguration. There are a lot of similarities and yet in another way the Garden of Gethsemane is the polar opposite of the Mount of Transfiguration for it is as low as the Mount of Transfiguration was high. Let's consider the similarities and contrasts between the Mount of Transfiguration and the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, on the first, on the front end, obviously both of them occur on the mountain. Uh, The Mount of Transfiguration is an unnamed mountain. The Garden of Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives. The same three disciples, Peter, James, and John, accompanied Jesus both times and on both occasions something special is revealed about Jesus, something deeper about who Jesus is and what he came to do is revealed. But that's where the similarities end. The similarities are meant to set us up for the contrasts to knock us over, for the contrasts to bowl us over. Let's look at the contrasts. On the Mount of Transfiguration, What was involved was a new, deeper revelation of Jesus' glory. Both the glory that he had prior to his incarnation, the glory that he ever knew with the Father uh, as God the Son, and also the glory that he's going to receive after going to the cross when he is raised up. So he will go from full sharing of glory with the Father as God the Son to now an even fuller and greater glory. He will be restored to his glory as God the Son, but now he will have a new and added glory as the Son of God. That is, as a man, as a glorified and perfect man. Um, And we also see the glory that is going to be coming upon the disciples as they are united with Jesus. That is what is revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. But the Garden of Gethsemane reveals Jesus' humiliation. It reveals how low he is going to go to remain faithful and obedient to the Father. How low he is going to go to save his people. How low he was going to go in order to be exalted high. And it also reveals the horror of Of what Jesus must go through on the cross. And we see the horror by the effect that it has on Jesus himself. Paul in Philippians 2 gives us a shorthand version of the humiliation of Jesus. It says that he existed in the form of God. This is prior to the incarnation. But as God the Son, he did not consider his godness. He did not consider his equality Uh, with the Father as equally God, as something to be clutched tight so they can't be taken away from Him, so that He can't take on the humility of the Incarnation. But instead, He emptied Himself. He emptied Himself of His divine privileges. And the idea there is that not only did God the Son's godness not stop Him, from becoming one of us, that he might save him. The the idea there is that because of his godness, he did it. So we we tend to think of, in spite of the fact that he was God, and that part is true, but what should really bowl us over is because he was God, he did this. We begin to see that truth that the cross of Christ doesn't just show us what God did for us one day. It truly shows us who God is. And that is really uh, too profound to fully take in. And so he took the form of a bondservant, says Paul. He didn't come as a, as a, as a king going to be on a, on a throne. He came as a, a, as a humble man in a humble family. And he came to serve. And being found in appearance as a man, it says he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death and that is even the death of the cross. So that is what is revealed in the Garden of Gethsemane. The second contrast is this. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we see Jesus strong. We see Jesus glorious. We see Jesus with no needs. He needs nothing from the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples just need to sit there and soak it all up. Just sit there and watch and learn. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus weak. Not weak in a sinful way, but just humanly weak. We see Jesus with needs. Jesus needs the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. He needs them. He needs Peter and John and James to watch and pray with them. Of course, they don't meet that need, but he needs it. He needs his his father and the help of his father. The third contrast. On the mountain of transfiguration, uh, the disciples are strong. The disciples are awake. The disciples are on top of the world. Uh, the, again, the immediate context is Peter's great confession. Everything is great. Everything is strong. The disciples are strong. In the garden of Gethsemane, we see the disciples weak. They are unable to stay awake. Uh, Luke adds the fact that they were unable to stay awake out of sorrow. It's not just the fact that this has been a long day, and it has been a long day, and there's not going to be any sleep this night. That's true. But the sorrow. Remember, Jesus keeps telling them he's going to the cross. And then at the Last Supper, right before instituting the Lord's Supper, Jesus tells them that one of them is going to betray him. And and, and it has the predictable result on the disciples that they are made deeply sorrowful and distressed when they hear that. They are dejected. They are dejected at this point. And I don't know if you've ever been through an experience that has been so hard and so bad, you just want to climb into bed and just pull the covers up. You just don't want to think anymore. You just want to go to bed. Basically, that's the state that the disciples are in in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're in the depths of dejection. Judas is going to betray, Jesus has said they're all going to scatter. Peter has said he's going to remain faithful and don't remember don't forget it also says the other disciples said the same thing once Peter said it Jesus says Peter you're gonna deny me three times before the night's out and so they are very weak and dejected the fourth contrast on the mountain of transfiguration Jesus is with friends he has the three disciples he also has Moses and Elijah in the garden of Gethsemane Jesus in effect has no friends at all because his friends are there but they're not there they're there but they're not there they're, they're asleep they can't handle it they're too dejected to be able to help him at all so he might as well be completely alone in effect Jesus has only the father to cry out to so those are the parallels that are supposed and the contrast that are supposed to strike us between the mountain of transfiguration and the garden of Gethsemane But there's another echo from earlier in Jesus' ministry, another parallel that I think Matthew wants us to see. And this is one that takes us all the way back to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And that is the parallel between the Garden of Gethsemane and the tempting of Jesus in the desert, all the way back in Matthew chapter 4. And again, I want to consider the similarities and the contrasts. Now, both his tempting in the desert and the Garden of Gethsemane involve Jesus facing trial and temptation. And remember how the scripture describes how trial and temptation work. The purpose of a temptation is to produce evil. Okay. The purpose of a temptation is to produce evil. So the devil tempts because the outcome he wants is evil. God does not tempt. Jesus. I mean, James tells us that. He says... God cannot sin, God cannot do evil, God cannot be tempted by evil, and God himself tempts no one. God puts no one in a situation in which evil is the outcome that he intends and desires. But God does place us in trials. In fact, James himself says, consider it all joy when you face trials, because he says these trials are sent to you by God in order to bring you to maturity as a Christian. So, what you often have in Scripture is a trial and a temptation. The reason why the trial is a trial is because there's a temptation involved. In other words, doing the good is not easy. If doing the good were easy, it would not be a trial. Doing the good is not easy. There's a temptation to do something other than good. So most all trials involve temptations. In fact, I would dare to say that they all do. And you may have Satan involved who wants evil to result. But God sends the trial not wanting evil to result. He wants good to result. He wants us to be brought to maturity as his sons and daughters. Another similarity between uh, Jesus' tempting in the desert and the Garden of Gethsemane is they bracket Jesus' ministry. One comes at the very beginning of his ministry, the other comes at the very end of his ministry. Third similarity, the will of the Father leads Jesus to both places. The will of the Father leads Jesus by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted, and the will of the Father has now brought Jesus to Jerusalem And to the Garden of Gethsemane. Number four, both of these settings involve privation. Jesus' temptation in the desert involves physical privation. He has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. The Garden of Gethsemane does not involve physical privation. Jesus just ate. He just had the Last Supper. But it does involve extreme spiritual and emotional privation. So Jesus is in a state of privation both times that he faces this trial and temptation. Uh, Number five, Jesus is effectively alone in both settings. He is actually alone out there in the desert. Uh, He uh, he has no human uh, friendship or accompaniment. And he is effectively alone in the Garden of Gethsemane because the disciples are too weak to stay awake with him. Number six, angels minister to Jesus in both. Now, Matthew does not mention an angel ministering to Jesus here, but Luke does. After Jesus goes through this whole trial of the Garden of Gethsemane, then an angel comes and ministers to him and strengthens him. Number seven, both relate not only to Jesus saving us, but to Jesus being qualified to save us. Jesus is only qualified to save us if he's a perfect man in two ways. Number one, he has to be perfect in the sense of being flawless. In other words, he doesn't have any sin. He's he's righteous, he's innocent of sin. But he also has to be perfect in the other biblical sense of being perfect. He has to be fully mature. And so you see, God created man, he created Adam and Eve, perfect in the sense of being flawless, innocent but they were not created perfect in the sense of being perfectly mature for that they had to walk with God even as Jesus did number eight both involve if we really think about it essentially the same temptations the same temptations in principle whether Jesus would live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God okay? whether he recognized That the most fundamental source of life is not bread that we stick in our mouths. It's the word of God that comes to our spirits. That that is the most fundamental source of life. That's the most fundamental food. You remember that uh, the episode with the woman in the well in the gospel of John, Jesus is hungry. So the disciples go into a nearby town to get some food they come back Jesus is involved in this conversation with a Samaritan woman that Jews aren't even supposed to talk to according to the etiquette of the day and they come back and they they think well he's all in into this conversation does somebody bring him food and Jesus says I have food you don't know about my food's to do the will of my father the thing that animates me and makes me live much more than any kind of normal food is the word of god and the will So, will Jesus live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, or will he look elsewhere? Um, Secondly, will Jesus wait for the Father to glorify him and exalt him? Or is Jesus going to grab for it himself? That's what Adam did. He grabs for the privilege of determining and deciding good and evil, which is a kingly role. That's a kingly office. Okay, He grabs for it. Jesus does not grab for it. That's one of the points that the book of Hebrews makes very strongly. Jesus did not exalt himself. Jesus did not grab. Jesus waited. He humbled himself. Beneath his father, he obeyed. He obeyed. He obeyed. He was faithful. He waited. And God exalted him. God conferred office upon him. And thirdly, the third temptation, would Jesus... In the face of the horrors of the cross, take the easy way of peace with the devil. Remember, one of the temptations was in the desert, the devil shows him the kingdoms of the world. He says, all this is yours if you worship me. There's no need for hostilities here, Jesus. I know what you came for. You came for the earth. You came for mankind. All of it has been judicially delivered to me because of Adam's sin. That's what the devil is saying. I give it to whoever I wish. You worship me. It's all yours. So will the Jesus go that route or will Jesus say, no, God the Father wants me to take this. Not to receive anything from you, but to take it. And the only way to take it is Jesus has to break the power of death, break the power of sin, and therefore break the power of the devil over mankind and the earth. Now, again, that's where the similarities end. Let's look at the contrast between Jesus' tempting in the desert and now the temptation and trial that he goes through in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the desert, Jesus is tempted by the devil, specifically and in person. It's the devil presenting these things and packaging these temptations. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the devil's not there. The temptation is coming from the circumstances. The temptation is coming from within. It doesn't make Jesus evil. James says temptation uh, arises from within us. It's the circumstances. It's the horrors of the cross. You don't need the devil to, preside any, uh, to present any temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is in the desert, the cross is a long way off at the Garden of Gethsemane, it's right here. How does it look up close, Jesus? How does it look now? And so the temptation is coming from within. And so we see that sometimes the strongest temptations we can face don't come to us from the devil. They come to us from our circumstances and from our own heart our own weakness in the face of those circumstances. And secondly, another contrast, of course, in the desert, again, we see Jesus strong. Even though Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, we never get a sense in the desert that Jesus is really uh, affected or, or, or penetrated through or grabbed hold of by these temptations. He just dismisses them. One after another, he quotes Scripture. And even when the devil quotes Scripture, Jesus quotes more Scripture. Be gone with you, Satan. He's strong. We never get a sense that temptation really gets to him. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, again, we see Jesus. We see him weak. The temptation here, it gets to him. It pierces him. It almost crushes him. That's, that's the sense that we get. Because, you know, Jesus, he knows God's will. When he prays to the Father and he says, if it is your will, he's not going, God, what is your will? I'm trying to discern your will. Is it your will for me to go to the cross? He has already told the disciples repeatedly that he's going to the cross. What did he say in Matthew 16? The Son of Man must, must be crucified. He must be delivered up. Jesus knows this in the garden. Yet Jesus is going to the Father. And so we see even with a perfect man here, we see temptation reaching him and almost crushing him. Well, as we begin to transition and turn to insights and applications I would like us to draw, I want to ask this question. Since this was the fulcrum of, of the trial and the temptation, this crucible that Jesus faced in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Jesus knew it before, and the Father makes it abundantly clear here. Why does Jesus have to go to the cross? Well, Hebrews 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 10, tells us that Jesus had to go to the cross for two reasons. One was to bring many sons to glory, that is, to save us. Jesus had to go to the cross. He has to break the power of sin and death. He has to break Satan's judicial claim over mankind and the earth due to Adam's sin. Hebrews goes on to tell us that it was necessary for Jesus to taste death for everyone in order to deliver us from death and save us. So Jesus has to go to the cross to bring many sons to glory. But secondly, Jesus had to go to the cross so that Jesus himself, as a man, might be perfected. Hebrews 2.10. That he, as a man, might be perfected. And there's that concept again of, of Jesus. He's already perfect. He's sinless. He's flawless. But he has to be brought to full maturity, full flower, full glory, as the image of God, as the Son of God. And that requires him... To obey God no matter what. And in this situation, it requires Jesus to obey God to the point of the cross in order to save his bride. That makes him a perfect man. And when we see this and we understand that the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the last Adam, in other words, he's a new Adam who's going to bring about a new humanity and a new creation, we, we, By understanding what Jesus is expected to do and the temptations he faces, we gain a lot of insight in what was really going on in the garden. And we begin to see, what did it mean for Adam? What did it mean for Adam to walk as the son of God in the garden of Eden? Well, of course, it meant for him to not stand by and wait, see what's going to happen when the devil in the form of this dragon is speaking to Eve and is deceiving her. And taking her down the wrong path. It's going to require him to stand forward. To stand forward. Now there's no question that Adam was completely captivated by Eve. I mean he is just smitten. He is fascinated. He is captivated by this one that God has formed from him and brought to him. And, and that part is good. That part is good. But it is not good that he sit back and allow her to go down this path, to be deceived and go down this path, and that he join her. He's not loving her at that point. He can't love her unless he loves God first. But we see that even if we were to imagine that somehow Adam is doing everything he's supposed to, but Eve gets deceived and Eve sins, and she eats of the fruit. Let's imagine that scenario. What is Adam supposed to do now that we see what the last Adam did correcting what the first Adam misdid, what was he supposed to do once Eve has eaten the fruit? And we see very clearly he's supposed to trust his father. He's supposed to go to the father. He's not supposed to f- go with her into this. He's supposed to go to the father and say, Father, this is what has happened. Take me. Let me die. Let me die bear the death that has come about. There's a covenant union between us. It's not just a covenant union of marriage. Adam is the covenant head of the human race. He's in a special position that's only mirried, uh, mirrored in Jesus. They're the only two that have had that kind of special position. That's why they, they act for somebody. Okay. That's what the first Adam should have done and that's exactly what we see the second Adam, Jesus Christ, Uh, doing. So Jesus had to go to the cross to bring many sons to glory and so that he himself might live up to his name as the Son of God. So we see that Jesus here is not only our Savior, he's also our example. Hebrews 12, 2. It says that Jesus is the author and the finisher or perfecter of our faith. Now the word for author is the Greek word of that we get archetype from. Jesus is the archetype of the faith that we as the images of God are expected to have. Jesus is also the perfecter of that faith. He is the one who in his own personal life has taken that faith to full maturity, to full glossy shine, to full radiance and glory. In other words, the end and the goal of that faith and everything that it's supposed to be. And that's the same faith that we are supposed to have. So we see that Jesus, while he was unique in his messiahship, okay, he's unique in his messiahship, that's not something we share. We don't share his messiahship, but we do share his humanity. And Jesus became like us, Hebrews tells us, he became like us in every way except for sin, so that we might become like him. So, Jesus is true man, he's true humanity, he's the true Son of God. And so Jesus not only makes us children of God through his messianic work, he also provides us with the perfect example of what we are supposed to be as sons and daughters of God. And we can see a perfect example of this in Jesus' prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do these prayers remind you of anything? Do they sound like anything that Jesus ever taught the disciples? Well, yeah, they sound a lot like the Lord's prayer that he taught them back in the Sermon on the Mount, where he taught them, pray, Father Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. What does that mean? Thy will be done on earth as it is heaven. Right? Thy will be done. And so we see Jesus modeling his prayers in the garden after the Lord's Prayer. Now many have argued the Lord's Prayer ought to be called the Disciples' Prayer because Jesus was telling the disciples to pray it. But we see in the Garden of Gethsemane that it is appropriately named the Lord's Prayer. It is to be our prayer as disciples because it was His prayer. This was His prayer. You see, for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, it is necessary for Jesus to say, Not my will be done, but thy will be done. So it's our prayer because it was his prayer. So having looked at that pivot point of Jesus not only as our Savior, but as our perfect example, let's draw some insights and applications. Number one, because Jesus is our example, we are supposed to fix our eyes upon him. Hebrews 12 Two, looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The word there for looking unto him means to look away from everything else. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Stop looking everywhere else when it comes to running this race we're supposed to run. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. This word here for running this race is an interesting one it means to run um, remaining behind to run remaining behind interesting concept a lot of times you will see in a long distance race or in a horse race um, that, that the star horse or the star person doesn't take the lead they're one back off the pace and they maintain in that position Throughout the race. And so it's a very, very patient race. And that's the word that is there. Insight number two Jesus is not only our perfect example for faith in general, he's the perfect example of how we're supposed to overcome trial and temptation, specifically. We're supposed to, according to Hebrews, consider Jesus who endured such hostility from sinners so that we don't grow weary and lose heart, which is what's happening to the disciples. Okay? Hebrews 12 speaks about the sin that is so close to us. It's so close to us all the time that it easily besets us. And it's the sin of unbelief. But it doesn't mean unbelief like just walking away from the faith. Walking away from the faith in the paganism. It's unbelief in the form that we see with the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Spirit's willing, says Jesus. You hear Peter, I will never deny you. Even if I have to die, the Spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. There's discouragement that sets in. Discouragement and dejection sets in. And so, see, Hebrews says, look, when that is happening, fix your eyes on Jesus. Remember what he went through. Remember the path that he blazed. And understand the story that God writes. That's the story God wrote for his son. And as his sons and daughters, God writes the same story for us it's not exactly the same because we're not messiahs okay we don't thank god he doesn't call us to go to the cross in the same way but still the same basic story of being perfected as sons and daughters and we start seeing that to be perfected as sons and daughters requires us to contend with evil and to overcome it Adam the first Adam he has to contend with evil he's expected to overcome it the second Adam really has to contend with evil And so, again, this age-old question, why does God permit evil? Why in the perfect plan of God who ordains all things is there evil? And, of course, the Scripture never spells out an answer for us. But if we're paying attention, we start getting some glimpses. Number one, we know... That had there been no evil, had there been no fall, we would never know the depths of God's love. Adam and Eve, they knew God's love. He created them. He created them perfect. He created the world. He gave them the garden. He gave them life. He gave them all these things. But they would never know the depth of the love of God who would go to the cross. That they would never know. And Paul, one of the things he prays for the church in Ephesians 3 is what? that you may know the height and the depth and the length and the breadth to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. The other thing we know is we would never know the fierceness of God's love and his, therefore his hatred of evil, his hatred of death, his hatred of twisting things that are created good and perverting them, his hatred of bondage and his hatred of evil. We would never know what it is to be. We would never completely be like God in that sense. Of contending with evil and burying it in the grave. And God wants us to be like him. It says in Hebrews that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. In other words, it was just—it more than just a horrible experience that was ahead with a lot of pain. We get this idea that there was a deep revulsion against the cross. And it mentions the shame of the cross in Hebrews. The cross was the lowest death for the lowest person. No Roman citizen could be crucified. It's the lowest death for the lowest person. It says this person is a is a is a a nothing, a, a criminal, an insurrectionist. They deserve to die. This is a person that God has utterly rejected. But it says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him for the joy set before him because he knows the end of this story that the father is writing. The end of this story is glory. The end of this story is joy and the end of this story is laughter. And so in John 15, Jesus says to the disciples on the occasion of the last supper, I've spoken all these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. It's the same story. It's the same storyline. Okay. And so we need to remember that when we face trial and temptation. Another insight, number three. Just because something is the will of God doesn't make it easy. All right? I think that one would stand out. Just because something is the will of God doesn't make it easy. Many times, precisely the fact that it is the will of God makes it hard. Number four. Seeking pain, hardship, or suffering is not holy or spiritual. Okay? Seeking pain, suffering, or hardship is not holy, nor is it spiritual. And seeking to avoid suffering or hardship is not unholy or unspiritual, because Jesus here seeks to avoid it if the Father is willing. Number five, even if you know something or believe something is the will of God it is not per se wrong to ask God to change it if he is willing and if it would not be wrong to do so. That's exactly what we see Jesus doing here. Now we cannot righteously ask God to change his will to something that's contrary to his commands. All right. But if it can be a righteously done, it's not wrong to ask God to change it if he is willing. But, number six, when we ask God to change His will or to change our circumstances, we must be willing to accept God's answer. We must be willing to accept His answer. Number six, if we are not willing to do God's will up front, if we don't go into life and go into every situation seeking to do the will of God, then we will not be able to discern His will. Okay? A requirement to discerning God's will is wanting to do his will. Jesus in John 7:17 7, uh, says, "If anyone wants to do God's will, then he will know of my teaching whether it's from God or not." If you want to do God's will, you'll know. If you don't want to do God's will, you're not going to know. Number 7. In times of hardship and affliction, God wants us to turn to Him and cry out to Him just like we see Jesus doing. God does not want us to be Stoics. God does not want us to be stiff upper lip people. God wants us to cry out to Him like we see in the Psalms and just like we see Jesus doing in the Garden of Gethsemane. And God will, str- uh, he will strengthen us if we turn to Him. Number eight, we will never go through what Jesus did... But God does put us all from time to time in little gardens of Gethsemane. It's a special type of trial and temptation. What is a garden of Gethsemane? How do you know to recognize it? Here's how you know you recognize it. You know you're in a garden of Gethsemane when there are a million reasons to do the wrong thing and only one reason to do the right thing. That's how you know. Number nine, when we go through trials according to the will of God, it's never just for God's glory. It is also always for our good and our exaltation. And finally, number ten, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven begins with thy will be done with me. Until you're praying God will be done with me, you're not really praying God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is, the chi- it is the heart of a true child of God as we see with Jesus. And so it's not, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if you really have to affect me in some way, then I suppose that's okay. The real heart of a child of God is precisely the one that we see with Jesus. And it's this, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, would you start with me today? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.